Well, church, it's good to see you guys again. Um, if you're one of our first-time guests or first time in a long time, we just started a brand new series uh, going through the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. Bottom line of it is, is as followers of Jesus Christ, if we are going to identify as followers of Jesus Christ, and I thought it'd be fantastic to know uh, that we're actually following the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And uh, what we talked about last week was that it's just not always a given that that's what we're doing. Uh, one of the things we explored last week was that uh, you talk with the average person on the street and you ask them about who Jesus is. Pretty much anyone you talk to is going to have affection and respect and, and honor for Jesus. They're just going to disagree about who he really is. So you talk to somebody on the street and they're going to say, yeah, we love him. He's fantastic and he's great, but they're not going to worship him as God or give him any honor uh, as God. You talk to a Mormon about who Jesus is and they're going to say that uh, he is the spirit brother of Lucifer and the big brother of all humanity. You talk to a Jehovah's Witness and they're going to say uh, he was created by the Father billions of years ago as Michael the Archangel. He's not even God at all. You talk to uh, a New Ager and they're going to say that Jesus was an enlightened master. You talk to a Unitarian and they're going to say that he was a good moral teacher. You talk to a Muslim and they're going to say that he was a prophet. A Hindu is going to say he was one of a million different gods and Buddhists are going to say that he wasn't God at all. He was just an enlightened man. But bottom line is that pretty much anyone that you talk to is going to have respect and affirmation for Jesus. There's just going to be very little agreement about who he actually is. And so we're going to take this next year to really dive into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything that he is, what's true to his nature, all of his teachings, uh, all of his miracles and encounters, and uh, why he decided to come. The goal of, of our series is very, very simple. We talked about this again last week. It's essentially this. It's Psalm 27, 4, that, that our church body would identify with the psalmist when he says, there's one thing that I've asked that I shall seek is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to be able to behold his beauty, just to be able to meditate in his temple. And so when we're thinking about this series, like very, very honestly, that is simply the goal. My hope and my prayer for myself as I study and for our church body as we focus intently upon the life of Christ is that you and I would identify along with the psalmist when he cries out and says, if there's one thing that I could have, God, is that I'd be able to see your face just a little bit more clearly. That I'd be able to behold you in the fullness of your beauty, all of your glory. God, would you just reveal yourself to me? Would I be captured up in the fullness of who you are, God, and then fall in line with that reality? It's essentially what, what we just sang about as a church body. Revelation 5, when the elders and the saints, they're caught up in the throne room of God, and they're beholding the fullness of Jesus Christ. The only thing that they can think to do is fall on their face and worship, crying out, worthy, worthy, worthy. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so, church, as we think about this next year together, diving into the life of Jesus Christ, I would invite you to pray along with me. Holy Spirit, um, by your wisdom, by your power, would you just reveal more and more to me about this resurrected Jesus Christ that I love and follow so much? And that's, that's essentially it. God, would you allow me to behold your beauty just a little bit more today? And so this morning, we're going to jump a start in uh, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, you can, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't, no big deal. I'm going to be putting a lot of passages up here on the screen uh, may feel a little bit like Christmas in September already. Um, easily, if you've read ahead in our, in our soap study this past week, you know this is probably one of the most riveting passages in all of Scripture, right? I got one laugh. That means one person followed along this past week. Here it is. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Check this out, church. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Okay. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. 
Nashon, the father of Salmon, it keeps going like this for a little while. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the right wife of Uriah. And I think we're kind of getting the point here, right? Like it just goes on like this for a number of different verses. Now, real quick, how many of you guys have ever got into your, your genealogy? Maybe you recently got an Ancestry.com. You're like, I, I want to know kind of where I came from. It's kind of fun to do. Uh, we were talking about it as a worship team a little bit before the service, and we kind of found out some fun things about each other's past. Um, a little while ago, I, I dug into my own background and found a, a couple of kind of fun ones from the, from the old lineage here. I got a picture of number one. The first one is Pocahontas, original picture, church. This is a original 1600s picture here. Uh, true story, mother's line, uh, evidently like Pocahontas is a direct descendant back there. You remember her story, right? Uh, she's kind of awesome. She married John Rolfe, was one of the leading mediators in the whole Jamestown movement at the very beginning. And so kind of a big wig and beautiful hair, of course, obviously. Um, I had an awesome one. Check this one out. Um, see if anybody can guess this one. Anybody know who that is? Custer. This is incredible. I didn't expect anybody to recognize that. George Armstrong Custer. You're exactly right. So he was also a direct descendant. You remember him from uh, the Civil War days, uh, Custer's Last Stand and uh, the Battle of Little Bighorn. Come to find an interesting fact about Custer, uh, he actually finished last in his class at West Point, right? And that, so evidently last at West Point is still first for the rest of the world, I guess. And so uh, I thought that was fascinating. Another cool thing about him, um, he was very well known for scenting his hair with cinnamon oil. So that majestic mane on top of his head, that's cinnamon oil. And like he just went around smelling like cinnamon oil. It was the first of uh, the essential oils salespeople back in the day and that kind of a thing. But he's a direct descendant on dad's side. But uh, anyway, I think this kind of thing is fascinating when you're looking into your own line. But I think we're probably all on the same page. Uh, you know, other people's genealogies are just not that exciting. I could pretty much care less about those things than, than anyone else's past. Nevertheless, like that's what we're seeing right here at the beginning of Ma- Matthew chapter 1. Like Matthew begins his entire gospel with his genealogy of the line of Christ. He's going to say, he's going to introduce it by calling it the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In other words, this isn't just any old genealogy. This is the foundation for the rest of the gospel story. And so here's how the whole thing's going to play out. Now, if you're a first century Jew and you're kind of wondering, okay, who is this Jesus? Is he really the son of God, the promised Messiah? The main question that you're going to have on the top of your mind is, okay, did he come from the line of King David? I mean, that's the thing that you're really wondering, and that's the thing that you're probably going to be most excited about. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes to King David, and he promises King David that uh, his lineage is going to last forever. And so for a first century Jew, they're looking at that kind of going, okay, this is exciting because this means that Israel is going to be on top again. Israel is going to be great again. They're going to be number one on top, and they're going to have these leaders. And the king of all kings is going to come from David's line. He's going to establish his kingdom, and it's going to last forever. And so that's exactly what Matthew's doing here. Essentially, just at the, at the very most basic level, what he's saying is, yes, Jesus is that king. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one that, that was promised from so long ago. He is that promised king. But even more than that, as you get into the details of this genealogy, we're going to find all kinds of details um, that show us about, the, 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 that teach us about the kind of king that Jesus actually is. The first thing that he's going to show us here is that, is that none of what takes place over a couple thousand years of history is random. Right? None of this is just random, but that he's a trustworthy king who's always in control. That, that this is not just Jesus kind of flying by the seat of his pants and reacting to some events that are taking place in the middle of history. But this entire thing was well thought out and was planned out and that God has been faithful from one generation to the next. It's in part why he takes the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Father Abraham. We're meant to remember his story. 
And remember, we just went through the big story scripture together this past year, but back in Genesis chapter 12, about before God, before Abraham even had this fantastic relationship with the father, the father comes to him and he says this. He says, Abram, go from your, front, your country, your people, and your father's household. And then he's going to make him a promise. He's going to make him three promises in this covenant. Do you guys remember what these are by any chance? I re- Thank you. Thank you, Jackson. I appreciate it. So the past year, like, like we made a huge deal about this. This is essential for the Abrahamic covenant. He promises Abram three things, land, people, and blessing. Land, people, and blessing. This is going to drive the story of the gospel from the very beginning all the way to the end. Land, people, and blessing. Here's what he says to Abram. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I'm going to show you. Spoiler alert, this is not the United States of America, right? I, this is actually going to be Israel, Okay. Verse 2, I'll make you into a great nation, meaning a people with an identity, and evidently you're going to have lots of descendants, meaning you're going to have children one day. And I'm going to bless you, part 3. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Now, the irony of this, uh, of this timing is that when, when God comes and he makes these promises to Abram, Abram's 70 years old at this time. On top of that, his wife is barren, which is a problem if your nickname for all generations is going to be Father Abraham, right? And you're going to be the the father of a great nation and all these different kinds of things. It's just very, very unfortunate circumstances. On top of that, like, uh, God's not going to fulfill these promises for another 30 years. So none of these promises are going to come to fruition immediately. Like, Abram's going to have to wait for all these different things. In fact, in chapter 16, just a, a few chapters later, about 25 years from the time of that promise, you're going to see this situation where Abram and his wife, Sarah, they begin to get impatient, and they're starting to doubt the trustworthiness and the faithfulness of God. And so Sarah takes it upon herself to come up with this brilliant idea and pitch it to her husband, Abram. And she goes, okay, well, I clearly can't have a baby. It's been 25 years since the promise. Uh, you're really, really old. This whole thing's not happening for us. Why don't you sleep with my maidservant, Hagar? She'll give you a son, and then you'll be able to carry on the promise that way. And, of course, that's exactly what takes place. They have a son named Ishmael. And, of course, they're thinking to themselves for a little bit anyway. They're thinking, okay, this is fantastic, wonderful. We finally got our son. Problem is two things. Number one, the promise came to Sarah, not to Hagar. Uh, So that's problem number one. Number, Number two is, like, since when has this agreement ever worked in the history of man? Right? Like, like when has that ever been a great idea? Ladies, let me ask you, like, like, like would you be okay if you're, stare, if, you're, if you're looking at Hagar right here and she's got your son right there? I mean, it just does not work out well, right? And, and of course, that's exactly what happens. Sarah gets jealous. She gets bitter. She starts emotionally and verbally abusing Hagar. And it's just this bad situation. Abram passively kind of step, steps out and is going, okay, I'm, I'm going to let you ladies work this thing out. And he's just kind of watching things from a distance. And, and it's just massive, massive dysfunction. A couple of years later, they're kind of still in the same boat. Chapter 17 comes around. They still don't have a baby. Abram's pushing 100 years old, and God comes to him and, and reaffirms the promise from the very beginning. Abram, I haven't forgotten about you. I'm still going to give you guys a son, and it's going to come through Sarah. And you remember what Abram does? I mean, he laughs in God's face. He's like, uh, uh, he, he literally laughs in the sovereign God's face. And, and we kind of understand this is human Abraham, right? This is these stories that we read and we're going, hey, I've been there before. Like Abram's pushing 100 years old. His wife is literally barren. They've been waiting on this promise for 30 years. But like what, what they have to learn at this time is that none of that matters for a sovereign God. Like none of that matters for a sovereign God, right? Well, so 30 years after their wedding, God comes and he gives them a son named Isaac. And of course, Isaac's not the end of the story. Like Isaac comes and, and he has a son named Jacob and, and Esau, 
And the birthright continues through Jacob. That's a whole other jacked up story in and of itself. Uh, but the birthright comes through Jacob. And then Jacob goes and he has 12 sons, one of whom is Joseph. And God used Joseph by his sovereignty to protect Israel during a time of famine. And then he carries on the, the, the birth line of the Messiah through Judah. Judah is going to be the father of Perez. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram, all the way down to King David, all the way through Israel's deportation to Babylon, all the way to King Jesus, through whom all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Church, Proverbs is going to put it like this. He's going to say, a king's hand is like a river in the hand of the Lord, but he, meaning the Lord, is able to turn it whichever way he chooses. In other words, church, it may look like Rome is in charge, but there's only one God who is sovereign. In other words, like it may look like, like Washington is in charge here and stuff, but there's only one who's been faithful from one generation to the next. Like from Abraham and his age, to Sarah and her barrenness, to Jacob and his trickery, to Israel and their enslavement, to Moses and their wandering, and Joshua and their homelessness, and David and their fighting, and Solomon and, and, and the civil war taking place there, all the way to Babylon, all the way to a virgin bride, from the garden to the incarnation, and from the incarnation to Christ's return, he is a trustworthy king who is always in control. Church, what would it be like if you could actually trust that when everything in your life, none of it makes any sense? Like, what would it be like if when, when everything around you is just falling to pieces and you can't imagine, you can't fathom the why behind everything that's taking place, what if in the middle of that place you were able to trust in the sovereignty of God throughout it all, that he is a faithful God from one generation to the next? Like in the middle of every transition that takes place. Like in the middle of your joblessness and you're kind of going, okay, I've got no idea what's next for our family, how these bills are going to be paid for. Like, I'll never forget that. I mean, four years ago, that's exactly where I was. I mean, it was just one of these, it was one of these moments where I had a, I was working at a church that I absolutely loved, and I had a job that I absolutely loved, and I was serving a people that I absolutely loved and still love to this day. And in the middle of that place, it, become, it became just a, abundantly clear to me and my spirit and with my wife that, that God was moving us from that time and saying, okay, Aaron, it's time to move on. And I went and I had a conversation with my boss, and I'm sitting there going, oh, Lord, this doesn't make any sense. I love where I am. Like, I love this ministry. I love what I get to do and all these different kinds of things. And I went and talked with my boss, and we had this conversation, and I started thinking, I started saying, okay, well, it just seems like God is leading us out of here, and it's time to take these next steps. And so we came up with a one-year transition plan, and here's what needs to take place. And I agreed for the next six months, I was just going to sit on this, and I was just going to pray let God be God and let him come and direct our steps. And I wasn't going to try to force anything and try to force my will on some sort of a situation. And so for the next six weeks, six months, uh, me and Kat, and we just, we just started praying, God, would you take us? Would you take us to this, these, wherever it is that you want us to go? And we have no idea. I have no idea where you want me to be. I have no idea if you're going to, we get to stay in Dallas or you're going to take us to Vermont or Idaho or something like that. No offense, but so it's like, I didn't know, like, right, it's a terrifying thing, right? And we just kept praying and praying. And at the end of this six months, I get a call from a church in town. And, and it's a church that we knew and loved. And we had friends working in there. And it's a fruitful church. And it was about a job that I loved and was really excited about. And we start talking and we go out. And it's one of these interviews the very first time that you totally hit it off with the people that you're interviewing with. Like, you love everything about them. You, you, you could have sat there all afternoon. And, and we come back for round two of interviews. And it's going really, really well. And and it just becomes a clear that that's where God's going to be taking us. And Kat's picking out houses out in that, that part of town and that kind of a thing. And we're looking at, at stuff and we're kind of going, okay, I think this is what's going to take place. And then all of a sudden, Brian Radabaugh calls me around Christmas time and says, hey, let's have lunch. And I hadn't seen Brian Radabaugh in years. And he reaches out to me in the middle of the blue and he says, I want to tell you about Dallas Bible Church. And we sat there and had a conversation about Dallas Bible Church. 
And God never let me forget it from that time on. Like I kept coming home and was supposed to be excited about this thing over here, but like every night, like I just kept thinking and praying about Dallas Bible, and it was like that was the thing that was right here. And we went through the Christmas break, and we came back to interviews around January to pick things up with that other church, and we're sitting there, and we had this double date with them, and, and it was going fantastic, and they just hence, sensed a little bit of hesitation, and they said, Aaron, what's, what's the thing that's holding you back? Like, what's, what reason would you give for not taking this position? And I was like, well, the thing about it is that I haven't been able to get Dallas Bible Church off of my heart. And they said, uh, but you haven't even started interviewing with them. I was like, yeah, I don't even have an interview lined up or anything. Like, you have nothing out there. They're like, we're offering you this. We're offering you this, all these, these different things, this place that you love, this city that you love, these people that you love, this church that's fantastic, and all these different kinds of things. And I said, yeah, but, but God has put Dallas Bible Church on my heart, and he hasn't, I haven't been able to let go of it. And I remember, I'll never forget the question they asked. They said, well, what's going to happen if that doesn't work out? And I just said, you know what? Then God's going to bring something else along the way that's right in the middle of his will. Like, church, what would it, hap- what would it be like if, if we always lived on those peaks, those times when you just nailed the faith, right? Like, what would it be like if, if you could just, in the middle when, like, nothing around you makes sense, like, you could just absolutely trust in the sovereignty of God all the time? Like, like those, those peak moments were just the absolute norm. Because I can tell you, like the past six months, like everything that was leading up before that was just full of anxiety and full of fear. And it was, Lord's, it was, it was me coming before the Lord saying, God, like what in the world are you going to do with us? Are we going to have a future? Is it going to be a good one? Is it going to be anything that we like? Are we going to be able to stay in Dallas around friends? Are we going to be able to do these different kinds of things? And, and Lord, can I trust you with my future? Like what would it be like if we could actually trust in the sovereignty and the goodness of God, that he's a faithful God from one generation to the next and that he knows what he's doing with your life? Look at how uh, Luke talks about in Acts chapter 17. Here's what he says. He says, from one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the entire earth And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. Church, in other words, what he's saying is that he moves people around for the glory of his name. Like what he's saying here is that he's sovereign, that he's in control, that he's good, that he's trustworthy, that he's faithful from generation, that he moves people around for the glory of his name. Like what would it be like if we could trust that when we can't see how the whole thing's going to play out? I mean, 10 years ago, I started a refugee ministry here in the middle of Dallas. I was getting to know the landscape of everything, and I had a chance to meet some Wycliffe missionaries here in the middle of Dallas that were living over in Vickery Meadow, where about 10,000 international refugees were living at the time. Now, if you know anything about Wycliffe missionaries, like, these are the people that go to the most difficult places in the world to go serve as missionaries. They go to these unreached people groups, these, these, different, these people that have uh, no missionary presence, and they go and translate languages so people can have a Bible in their own written language. And here they are in the middle of Dallas living in Vickery Meadows. Like none of it made a whole lot of sense to me till I find out that right there living in the middle of Vickery Meadows is a people group that was completely unreached previously. Now, what that means is in the missionary world is like the unreached people groups are the people that are identified all the way around the world that have less than 1% representation of believers in their, in their whole community, in their whole country, in their area, things like that. Less than 1% know the Lord Jesus Christ. Typically, that means zero. They have no missionary presence. They have no church presence. They have no access to hearing or receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have no missionary presence or people that are over there doing any kind of work. These are the people that missionaries need to be going to. 
And here it is. God and his sovereignty worked around. Somewhere around the world, there was turmoil and tension taking place. And God has brought them right here in the middle of Dallas. And they met these Wycliffe missionaries who were there sharing the gospel with them. A number of them came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They start working with them, developing a written language and developing a written Bible that they can go back to and have uh, the word of God in their own language. Church, that's what we're talking about when it says, when we say that he moves people around for the glory of his name, that he's sovereign over all of these different things, that he's faithful from one generation to the next. Like church, what would it be like if you actually trusted in that when nothing else in your life makes sense in that moment? Like what would it be like if when everything is moving and you have no idea what these next steps are going to be like, if you sit there and said, you know what, I have no idea what my future holds, but I know the God who holds it. And I know the one who holds me in the palm of his hand. And I know his character. And I know that it's good. And I know that he's sovereign. And I know that he wants to do whatever it takes to move people around for the glory of his name. Like, what if you could see that in your own marriage? Like, the movement in your marriage. Like, the movement taking place in your own marriage isn't just accidental, but it's actually a a wake-up call from the hand of God saying, hey, it's time to pay attention and to start getting serious about the things of God. And it's time to repent. And it's time to treat your partner like the, the image bearer that they actually are. Like, what if you could see the hand of God in these things and in every job transition? What if you could see it in the refugee crisis going on around the world? That it's not just an inconvenience to your life, but it's actually an opportunity that's been handed to us by the sovereign God of all creation. Like, what if you could believe in his sovereignty and his goodness and his faithfulness from one generation to the next when the things happening around you made no sense at all? It's exactly what Matthew's showing us here in a simple genealogy. He thought it was about names and stories and things of that nature. But what he's showing us is that from one generation to the next, from the very first promise back there in the garden that God is going to send an heir of Eve who's going to crush Satan's head, all the way to Abraham, all the way to King David, into, uh, d- into Babylon and into the virgin bride, that he's a faithful God from one generation to the next. He's a trustworthy king who's always in control. Second thing that he's going to show us is that um, he's a trustworthy king who came to redeem It's the reason why he's here. It's the reason why he came. Check this out in verse 17. This is how the whole thing kind of wraps up. It's very interesting what Matthew does here in verse 17. Um, He's going to get into a little bit of numerology and math here. Here's what he's going to say. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. In other words, there's going to be three sets of 14 generations is how he sums up this entire section on the genealogy of Christ. And it seems a little weird that he's going to be going into math here, right, in chapter 1, right? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense in scriptures. Why is he doing math at the end of this genealogy? But he's, he's got a point behind it, right? 14 is, of course, two different sevens, right? 14 is two sevens. So all in all, there's three sets of 14 generations, which means there are six sets of seven, which means that Jesus is going to be the seventh seven. Now, what we know from Scripture is that seven is a number which often means completion, perfection, or rest. We're going to see this even in the garden. Six days in a row, God worked. On the seventh day, God rested, right? In Leviticus 25, for six years in a row, the people were supposed to work their land. In the seventh year, they're supposed to rest. They're supposed to trust in the provision of God, that God can come and provide for them even apart from their work, and they're supposed to trust in the provision of God. Then in the 50th year of that cycle, meaning the seventh set of seven years, the 50th year of that cycle, that's supposed to be a year of jubilee, right? This is going to be a year when all debts will be forgiven and all slaves will be redeemed. And so what Matthew's doing here in chapter one is that he's showing us that Jesus comes as a seventh seven. And what he's saying is that Jesus is the ultimate rest. He is the ultimate jubilee in whom all debts will be forgiven and slaves will be redeemed. 
And church, that's the story that we're going to be seeing all throughout this, this genealogy. Like, I don't know if you noticed this, but this, this whole storyline, like, none of it reads how you would typically think it would read. Right? If, if, if Matthew's just making the point that, that he's the promised Messiah, all he needs to do is take the lineage of Christ back through the different men, back through the line of King David, maybe even back to Abraham. But it's just not what he does. Like most genealogies, they're going to read kind of like a, like a social media platform where um, you only put the highlights of your life to make other people think that you're really awesome and better than everyone else, right? It's kind of like a resume. You fudge a resume every now and then to make sure that your employer or potential employer knows that you're the greatest person in the world and they'd be ridiculous not to hire you. Like that's how genealogy is read, especially, like a, as a, especially for a genealogy of a king. Right? You're, you're going to highlight the, the godly Beyonce's in your, in your family line, and you're going to hide the Uncle Rico's that kind of bring some shame upon your past and things like that. But it's just not what Matthew does. Like Matthew goes out of the way to make sure that people are named that have shame attached to their name. And he, and he goes out of the way to highlight four different women in the story that have those titles uh, affixed to their name. Check it out in verse 2 and 3. Abram was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Anyone in here remember Tamar's story with Judah? Genesis chapter 38. Like this is, again, one of these stories that you read and you're going, what? What just happened here? This is in the Bible? I can't even read this to my kid at night, right? Like, it's just a messed up story, but essentially it kind of goes like this. Judah has three sons, Ur, Onan, and uh, Shalaf. Ur is the oldest. He marries Tamar. Uh, and so, fantastic. However, in the first year of their marriage, he ends up passing away, and he dies before they could have any children together. And so legally, Onan, the second one, comes along, and he's supposed to then marry Tamar, provide for her, care for her, protect her, give her children, carry on the family line. Problem is that Onan doesn't love her, but he goes along with what he's supposed to do, and so he marries her. And of course, he doesn't love her, care about her at all, so he doesn't give her any children. And in fact, he kind of emotionally abuses her in some different ways. And, and sure enough, within that first year also, he also passes away. So at this point in time, Tamar has been widowed twice already, and father-in-law Judah is kind of looking at this whole scenario going, yeah, I don't trust this woman very much anymore. Like there's something about her that's cursed, right? If she, like my sons keep dying around her, I know she's not doing it, but like they keep dying. So she's a cursed woman. And so there is a third son named Shalah, but Shalah's a little bit younger and he's probably not the right age to be marrying a, an older woman. And so, uh, and so he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go live in your own land. And so he essentially kicks her out and says, I don't trust you. I, like, you're, this, you're this shameful person who's probably cursed of God. And so you're supposed to go live in this land by yourself. And when, you, when Shalah comes to the appropriate age, then you'll be able to come back and marry uh, him. Uh, however, that was never his intention at all. It's just what he told her. Nevertheless, Tamar goes and she's obedient. And so she goes and she, uh, she lives out uh, the rest of her days as a cursed widow in this foreign land. She's got no one to provide for her, no one to step up and no one to protect or anything like that. And, um, and she's living as a cursed widow out there. Meanwhile, a few years later, she comes with a plan. And she hears a little rumor that Judah's coming to town. And so she devises a plan for her own safety and for her own protection. And it's a pretty messed up plan. She remembers that Judah has a taste for prostitutes. And so she decides, okay, I'm going to dress up like a prostitute. I'm going to somehow hide my face. And that's just how it was done. And, and somehow I'm going to trick him into sleeping with me, bearing my child. And he's never going to know it was me. And somehow she pulls off this incredible trick, right? They sleep together, and of course, she gets pregnant. Well, a few months later, when Tamar finally starts showing, 
Judah looks at her and says, okay, you're supposed to be married to my, my third son, and I, we're somehow related in this whole thing. Uh, you're bringing shame upon me and my family as someone who's pregnant out of wedlock. Never mind the fact he's soliciting prostitutes, right? Like the hypocrisy of the whole thing is just ridiculous. But you're bringing shame upon me and my family for being pregnant outside of wedlock. So he gathers a crowd, and he tries to have her stoned to death. And so he brings her out in front of this crowd and charges her with adultery, and, and they're going to have her stoned to death. And just before he throws the first stone, she pulls out of her little tunic a belt that was Judah's belt, which he left behind that time that they slept together. And she pulls it out, and she says, I have here the belt of the man whose child this is. And boom, you can just hear the mic drop, right? Like everybody's kind of going, what just happened? And Judah's stomach just sinks. And he's just looking around and he's kind of realizing everything that's taking place. And he's feeling the weight of his shame right there. And that he was not a man of his word. That he's not a man of character. And he puts down the stone and he takes it in Tamar. And the family line continues right there in the middle of Jesus' genealogy. And that's the story of Judah and Tamar. Like Judah's not this hero. He's, a, he's an abusive jerk who's soliciting prostitutes. And Tamar has been shamed and she's been cast to the side she's been widowed twice and she's been labeled and seen as a curse upon other people and and she's not even necessary to prove the point that that jesus is the promised messiah yet here she is because matthew's making a point that she is exactly why jesus came in the first place to redeem and the story just keeps going Right, like verse 4, Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now Rahab has a fascinating story, does she not? Like Joshua chapter 2, it's an incredible story, but what's her, what's her nickname? She's always known as Rahab the harlot, the prostitute. She never sheds that name. Two problems with Rahab. Number one, she's not Jewish, number one. Like that's, that's kind of a problem. This is the lineage of a Jewish king. Here's Rahab, and she's not even Jewish. So that doesn't fit. But number two, like she never sheds this label. She's always known from there on out as Rahab the harlot. In fact, uh, Job and Psalm and Isaiah, uh, her name is used as a metaphor for evil. Here's what Isaiah says. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake is in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces, who pierced the dragon? Like that's how her name is used. It's a metaphor for evil. Right? Like, can you imagine that kind of baggage hanging over your rep reputation and who you actually are? I mean, you think that she lived in shame? Constantly. And here she is in the line of Jesus Christ, the promised king, the king of all kings, the promised Messiah. And none of her story makes any sense unless Matthew's making a point that she is exactly why Jesus came in the first place. And it's not just her, right? Like, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Ruth has a fantastic story. She's got an entire book dedicated to her name. She's heroic. She's valiant. She's full of faith and full of courage. She's a go-getter. She's all kinds of beautiful, awesome things. But the thing she has going against her is that she's also not Jewish. In fact, she's a Moabite. And if you know anything about the Moabites, like they're not good people. They're the arch enemy of the Israelites at this point in time. They begin back in Genesis chapter 19 from the uh, offspring of the incestuous relationship of Lot and his oldest daughters. Just not a good way to begin as a people, right? Like that's the first time we get them. One commentator wrote, it's widely accepted that they were one of the main causes of Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord. 
Deuteronomy 23, they're not even allowed to worship or be in the presence of the Israelites. They're banned from uh, being in the assembly of the Lord's people. Reason is, the king of Moab uh, brought in a sorcerer named Balaam to curse Israel. That didn't go very well. The curse didn't last or anything like that. So the king changed his orders, and he ordered all the women of Moab to go and seduce the Israelite men to, in order to lead them away from faithfully worshiping the Lord. And so that's, that's kind of problematic, right? It's why um, King Solomon's fall was largely because he married so many Moabite women, and they were successful in getting him to worship false gods. But again, like that's who the Moabites were, and that's who Ruth is. Right? That's who she is. She's a Moabite widow who, much like Tamar, has no one to provide for her, no one to protect, uh, no one to care for her whatsoever. She's seen as cursed by the world until ultimately she marries Boaz, who becomes her kinsman redeemer, which is a whole other uh, story for another day. Together, they become the parents of Obed. And Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king. That's fantastic, right? Well, David is the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. It's like Matthew's not even trying to be subtle anymore, right? Like, she had been the wife of Uriah. Like, anyone here heard the story of David and Bathsheba? I mean, it's the most famous story of adultery and and unfaithfulness in all of Scripture here. This is the time when King David, God's anointed king, decided to have one of his best friends in the world killed so that he could sleep with his wife. Like, Like, none of these stories fit in the lineage of a righteous king. Like, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, none of these stories make sense in the lineage of a righteous king. Like, he could have picked a dozen other godly women to highlight. Sarah would have been an incredible example of humility and faithfulness. Like, Rebecca would have been a testimony of generosity and kindness. And Rachel would have been a testimony of patience and faithfulness to the Lord. But it's just, it's not what he does. Instead, he chooses four different women and a whole lot of men who are known by their sin and marked by their different scandals because they are why Jesus had to come. And Matthew gets this message. Like, he gets it because he's been faithfully following the Lord Jesus for three years in his adult ministry. Like, he followed Jesus around. He, he heard what he taught. He saw the things that he did. Like, he knows these different things. Like, he was, there when, he was there when he was healing, and he watched them eat with the lowly. He was there at the cross when Jesus said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. In other words, he knew that shady people who were full of sin and marked by scandal were the reason that Jesus had to come. But he also realized that it wasn't just their story, that it was his story too. Like that's what Matthew gets. It's not just a distant thing for those people over there. Like Matthew gets that this is his story too. In other words, like all the men and their baggage and all the women and their labels and these different kinds of things, like, like these are Matthew's kind of people because it's exactly who he was until the day that he first met Jesus. And he writes about it in Matthew chapter 9. And just before he gets to his own autobiography and his own testimony of, and his own gospel about how he met Jesus that day, he tells this little story of this day when a bunch of people brought a paralytic to Jesus in order to be healed. And here's how he sets up his whole autobiography. These people bring this paralytic to Jesus in order to be healed. And Jesus looks at the man and he says this. He says, son, take courage. Your sins have been forgiven. And it's not, the, it's not the line that you're really expecting from Jesus because they're bringing this paralytic, expecting this man to be physically healed. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, right? And of course, people are a little bit confused by this. The religious leaders, they know exactly what Jesus is claiming. And of course, they're furious about the entire thing. And they're saying, hey, who in the world do you think you are that you have the power and ability to forgive sins? And Jesus knows everything that they're thinking and feeling. And so he responds and he says, let me ask you this. He says, what's easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven or go get up and walk. In other words, like you really want to settle for physical healing when I have the ability to heal what's really crippling you in your life. 
really, you want to settle for physical, physical healing? He turns back up to the paralytic and he says, uh, get up, take up your mat and go home. And in verse 8, it says that they were all awestruck and glorified God that he'd given such authority to Jesus. And church, that's the story that Matthew chooses to introduce his own. It's a story that makes it abundantly clear that Jesus didn't just come uh, for quick fixes or just great moral teaching. That he came to redeem all who are spiritually enslaved, physically and spiritually. Matthew chapter 9, like this is a message that Matthew's going to need to hear and understand. Because this is his story. He needs this redemption. And maybe the physical part's going to come later on, like in glory. Maybe, maybe God's going to do a miraculous thing. But like Matthew needs to hear this story. In verse 9, it says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew who was sitting in the tax collector's booth. Now, what you need to know about this is like, there's nothing glorious about this meeting with Jesus. This is the worst place you could possibly meet Jesus. It's embarrassing and it's shameful. Like tax collectors, they were the scum of the earth at that time. Reason is because they, weren't, they didn't just give unto Caesar what was rightfully Caesar's. The way that tax collectors made their money was by going above and beyond what the government was due. They took it and they hoarded it from themselves and they got rich on, on just robbing other people. On top of that, Matthew's not just any old tax collector. He's a Jewish tax collector, meaning that he's robbing his own people. He's a traitor to his own people in addition to that. And this is the very first time that he meets Jesus. I was reminded of a number of years ago when I first moved to Dallas, right out of A&M, um, I was a car salesman for a few years. And I wanted to do that on purpose. I wanted to get away from the church and get outside of ministry and things of that nature. I wanted to work in sales for a few years before I started up seminary and ministry and all these different kinds of things. Nevertheless, I don't have to tell you, like car salesmen don't have the greatest reputations in the world. And so I'm sitting there in the dealership one day. I was working over at Sewell uh, over in Park Cities. And, um, and this pastor comes into the dealership and I knew him very well. He was one of the famous pastors here in Dallas that everyone looks up to and stuff. And and we're talking, and I'm showing him some cars, and we're having these good conversations. And I'm like, yeah, actually, uh, I'm, I've got about one more year left here at the dealership, and then I'm going to hit seminary, and I'm going to go into ministry too. And I'll never forget the look on his face. He kind of looked at me. He's like, really? Car salesman in ministry? Yeah, right, buddy. Like, he just kind of, just one of these, like, kind of, these, these, yeah, right. Like, that's not, you're probably not going to be going down, going and doing that kind of a thing. And, and the reason I say that, like, I, like Matthew's in, his situation's a million times worse. Like the tax collectors are, are the most uh, scorned people in that day. Nevertheless, the first thing that Jesus says is, come, follow me. In other words, Matthew, I see you, but your past is not being held against you. So Matthew gets up and he goes with Jesus. And the next thing we know in verse 10, check this out. Jesus is at Matthew's home and he's eating at his table. And it says this, it says, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. You know how we talk about how Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors all the time? You ever make the connection that it began back there at Matthew's home? Like the reason that they're there and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners is because that's who Matthew hung out with. That's who Matthew was. And so, of course, the Pharisees, they're looking at this thing and they're going, none of this makes sense. It's not what, it's not what, what righteous people do. And so he says to the disciples, they say, why is your teacher eating with these tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And the crazy thing is, like, the people that are sitting there at the table that are listening to this, they're not, they're not offended that they were just called sick. Because tax collectors and sinners and people that understand these things, like, we understand that there's no way that holy can have anything to do with unholy. Like, we understand that there's a disparity there and that something needs to take place and that there's something wrong going on inside. And then in verse 13, Jesus turns to the religious leaders 
And he says something that just changes their religious paradigm forever. He says this. He says, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, the scene where the religious leaders had forgotten the heart of worship. And he says this, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, don't forget that my approval of people is on the basis of my mercy towards them, not on the basis of their sacrifice towards me. Church, are you hearing me here? Don't forget that. Don't forget that, 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 that our relationship and your righteousness, your right standing before me is not on the basis of your sacrifice, your religious perfectionism, everything that you're bringing to the table. Remember that it is on the basis of my mercy and my mercy alone. Don't you dare forget that. Why? Because I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's what Matthew gets about Jesus. Like he knows, Matthew knows more than anybody knows what it feels like to be guilty before holy God. He lives in that shame. Like he knows exactly what it is to be despised by other people and cast off by a family. Like he knows that feeling. He knows what it's like to be completely unworthy in every possible way. He just didn't know that there was still hope until the day that he met Jesus and realized that the reason Jesus came was for the Tamars and the Rahabs and the Bathshebas and the Judahs and the Abrahams and the Davids and everyone in between who is also just like him. So here it is, church. Um, what this means is that our gathering around here is going to look a little messy from time to time. It just is. It's not going to be a perfect gathering. We're not going to be a perfect people. What this means is that if we're honest and we gather together week after week, it means that things are going to be a little bit messy, but we're going to be a church that's going to embrace the mess every single time. On Tuesday this past week, our staff, uh, we went out to Cornerstone Baptist Church in South Dallas, and we visited the um, community kitchen that's out there. How many of you guys, real quick, have ever had a chance to visit out at Cornerstone Baptist and see some of the work that's happening out there? Yeah, we just started. Um, well, we got a lot more work to do there. Um, Incredible, incredible ministry going on in Cornerstone in, uh, in South Dallas. The community kitchen is a gathering. It's a giant building where they gather about 250 homeless people pretty much every single day. They feed them a warm meal. They have church. They have a chapel service. They pray with people. They do job training and skills, acquisitions, and different things like that. And you'll never guess who we saw out there that day. Like I saw Tamar. And I saw Rahab. And I saw Matthew. And I saw David, and I saw all these people in this lineage, and I saw myself. And we talked, and we served, and we prayed, and was it messy? It was church, like, it was absolutely messy. Like, the conversations were weird. They were broken. In the middle of church service, people are standing up and doing things that just doesn't happen around here. Like, it's absolutely messy, but at the end of the day, like, I'm, I need the exact same grace as everyone else does, and so... We're going to be a church that's going to embrace the mess every single time. And we're going to be a church that's going to continue to engage with the refugee community. And, and here's the thing about doing something like that is like, like uh, there's a language barrier there. And there's cultural differences and there's a clash of values that's going on. But, but we've got to be a church that continues to embrace the mess every single day. And what it means is that when you walk around the church and you get past the, the peripheral conversations of, yeah, everything's great, but you actually get into people's life. You're going to realize that there's a giant mess going on behind the scenes and behind the whole facade of what we try to, what we try to promote. And you're going to realize that there's this thing going on really inside of us that's not always beautiful. 
And we're going to have conversations. You're going to look at on these halls. You're going to see Rahab's and you're going to see Bathsheba's and you're going to see self-righteous hypocrites like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And, and people are going to offend you if you know the things that are really going on in their life. And you're going to get into life groups and people are going to start getting real with each other. And what's going to happen is people are going to start confessing to adultery like David and Bathsheba. And people are going to start confessing to all kinds of things. And you're going to sit there and you're going to go, I've got no idea how to engage with this thing. But we're going to be a church that's going to be willing to sit there and be patient and engage the conversation. Because we're going to be a church that embraces the mess. And we're going to be sitting in these different small groups and our minority friends are going to come and they're going to say, you know what, there's still racial problems going on in the world today. And there's still things that I'm experiencing there that you have nothing, that you have no knowledge about whatsoever. But, and you're going to be tempted to sit there and to get defensive and to say, okay, it's done. And, and you're going to be tempted to go and to get up and run and to avoid the conversation. But we're going to be a church that engages the mess and is willing to sit there in the conversation and willing to honestly go before the Lord and say, Lord, is there anything that you may want to do inside of me to bring healing into this particular thing going on right here? And people are going to be confessing to all kinds of things, traction to this person, attraction to this person, addictions here and there, and you're going to feel completely inadequate to engage this conversation. You're going to want to run because it's a difficult thing to engage, and it's a, you don't always have the answers. But we're going to be a church by God's grace that continues to engage the mess and is willing to wait a little bit longer and is willing to sit and willing to listen and willing to pray and say, God, is there anything that you would do in me and in this group here to be able to engage this thing? Because I know, because I know, because I know that you are a God who came. You are a trustworthy king who came to redeem. Church, that's who he is. It's, just, it's, it's what he came to do. Like he's a trustworthy king who came to redeem. He didn't come to call the righteous. He came for the sinner. From Abraham to David to Babylon to the Virgin Mary, he has always been in control and he is always looking to redeem. May we be a church that sees that kind of king, sees him in the fullness of his beauty, sees him in his glory, sees him in his purposes, and is willing to walk in light of who he is.